You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he didn't see that big hole in the ground. I guess he couldn't see that well. (laughs) It's Mr. Jeff McLeod here. (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess since you're not a dad, you can't do dad jokes well. (laughs) Of course I can. Hey, man. How's it going? I... I'm okay. Nothing yeah. great. People don't turn into the show to hear about you know our problems and stuff True. like that. But uh, I kind of hit a sticky patch. Oh, uh, over the past over the past I don't know month or so. But what I do whenever I hit these uh, sticky patches is I call it kicking the jukebox. Yeah, and it could be just something simple like taking a different route to go to work. Right. Or, you know, just just breaking up the routine somehow. And one of the things that I did was typically on Tuesdays, I have my live art stream that I do on Facebook Live. Yes. And sometimes I do it on the Twibbly Twitch channel. Not often, but I should start up again. Yes. Uh, at any rate, uh, I do live art streams on Tuesday. I've been drawing the same way for probably the last almost 20 years. Prior to uh, 2004, I always drew in inks. Mm -hmm. And then in 2004, I switched over to charcoal. So I just completely changed my medium. Yes. So now I'm still drawing in charcoals, but I got a new way of doing it. Okay. What I do is I completely black out the page with the charcoal. Right. And then I draw what I'm trying to draw with erasers. Yeah. I understand. Yeah, I know you've seen it, but I understand how you're doing. Okay. It. Yes. So what I'm doing is I'm drawing the the whites instead of the blacks. I'm. It's a completely different method of drawing. Sure. Yeah. You're pulling the picture and, out of the out of the blackness, right? You're like you're chipping away at the marble yeah. to find Michelangelo's David. I get the metaphor. Yeah. And I've done probably about maybe four or five drawings mm-hmm. that way so far. And every time I do it, I'm like, I hate this. I don't know why I'm doing it like this. I hate it. <laughs> because the picture doesn't really start to look like anything until you're almost done. Yes. You know? Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say that it's like, you know, as you're drawing it, you're not like, oh, this is coming out pretty good. Because you don't get a sense of it coming out good or not until you're almost done. Yeah, you got to reveal the whole thing. I totally get that. Yeah. Every time I'm doing it, I'm like, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. So this week, I decided I was going to go back to my normal method of drawing, and I was doing a American Werewolf in London. Yes. It was weird going back to my normal method because the eraser method became my normal method. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. 
yeah, so that's my little way of like kicking the jukebox and just like completely, I don't want to say reinventing myself, but mm-hmm. at least finding a new way to do something. And that's actually been pretty good. I like it. Yeah, trying something new, especially artistic, it can always sort of change the, I guess, change the way you perceive what your mood or the world is like at the time because it gives you something to focus on. It's like learning a brand new skill, uh-huh. but it's one that you're, sure. you're not, it's not, it's not being imposed on you from the outside. You're picking to do it. Similarly right. to you, I have just, for the first time ever, really finished a long-form piece of writing after eight years of banging on it. Eight years. Oh, eight okay. Years. I thought you said 18. Eight, no. Like, if, no it was it was 18 if it was 18 eight. years, it would have started in crayon. No, but eight years. Eight years is a long time to write anything. But I got it to its yeah. closure last weekend, and I thought, like, oh, I've, been, I've been hanging around with these characters for eight years. What am I going to do? I felt like I lost some friends. <laughs> it was really strange. Yeah. Oh, that's why you write anthologies, or not anthologies, uh, what would you call that? A series of books. Uh, yeah, well, you call it a series. Yeah, okay. Seems like it should have a better name than that. <laughs> <laughs> no, an anthology is a bunch of uh, thematically linked. Short uh, thematic, stories. Yeah, yeah, short stories that are thematically bound together by something. Yeah, I don't uh. I do not do series. It's not mine. I don't even like to read series fiction, so. Okay, before we get into the show proper, okay. I do have my series of very popular and always well-received trivia questions. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Bill. All right, I have a short list here, but there's a much longer list, I'm sure. But I'm just going to bring <laughs> up these these five songs right here. All, All right. of these songs were big hits. A lot of them went to number one. But they were all very, very popular hits. I'm sure you know all of these songs. Oh, boy. Sweet Dreams are made of this by yep. Eurythmics. Pinball Wizard by The Who. Mm-hmm. Losing My Religion by R.E.M. Right. Money by Pink Floyd. Okay. And Hound Dog by uh, your friend of mine, Elvis Presley. All of those songs were very, very popular. They were all very well known. And they all have something very unusual in common. We're looking for that unusual, Jeff. <laughs> okay. Well, I hate to disappoint the audience, but we'll disappoint you at the end of the show. All right. But this is going to be the week beginning May the 8th. I believe it is your turn to start. Uh, let me check my calendar. It is, in fact, my week to start. May 8th, 1959. Mike and Marion Illich found Little Caesar's Pizza Treat, which over a period of years becomes the franchise Little Caesar's Pizza. Known for their two pizzas for the price of one, pizza, pizza. It's not a deal. That's like how they do pizzas. Well, that's what they used to do. I remember whenever Little Caesars first came to this area, it was in the 90s over in Fairhaven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got two pizzas. That's why the guy would go, pizza, pizza, because you got two of them. Yes. And they used to come in this big-ass long box that I had to like open the hatchback of my car to get it in. Yeah. That was awesome. Now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My friend Kelly was, we used to work there. We To this day, I will occasionally call her Kelly Kelly. Yes. So um, now they're just like, they're banking themselves on their cheapo crapo pizza. They lean hard into the discount. Like, it's weird to say, but like a discount pizza market? Is that a thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you think of like chain pizza, there's, Domino's, there's Pizza Hut, there's Sparrow, there's a couple of others, right? And they all have sort of specialties. Yeah. Domino's, they'll deliver. Pizza Hut, now they deliver, but they didn't always, and they have sit-down restaurants that Domino's doesn't have. And Little Caesars has ne- neither delivery nor, nor sit-down spaces in their restaurants. You have to go in and pick it up and take it, right? 
But they save on no, all No, yeah, it's, it's almost like a storefront when you go in there, right? Like, even when you're waiting for something, which you don't have to do, that's another one of their gimmicks is it's hot and ready. Right. Like, you just walk in, you're like, hey, can I have a pizza? And they're like, do you want plain or do you want that with pepperoni? It's like, uh, do you have mushroom? Do you want that plain or do you want that with pepperoni? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it keeps costs down. Yeah. That's the most recent model that they had. But again, like we, we talked about earlier, the model used to be you get two pizzas for $10 or two pizzas for $5. Two full-on, yeah. like, medium pizzas. And you know that the quality of the ingredients in those two medium pizzas that you got for $5 was probably lower than you were going to get yeah. at another fast pizza place or another, like, chain pizza place. But the difference was, man, for 5 bucks, what do you think you're going to get? And the whole thing is, I, I know some people that are like, oh, I hate Domino's or I hate Papaginos or I hate this, that, and the other. The bottom line is, it's pizza. Right. And... Except for the one pizza that I had at Rocky Point Park <laughs> in the late 80s, I don't think I've ever had like bad pizza in my life. That's a really, really high or low or however you want to put it, bar to jump over to make a bad pizza. I, yes, other pizzas are better than others, but I mean, it's fine. Little it's, Caesar's it's fine. It's pizza. I can't that I remember ever having a bad pizza that I didn't make myself. So there's <laughs> there's that caveat. Like when you learn how to make pizzas, the first half a dozen or so. They come out like crap. They're the wrong shape, the wrong texture. The crust doesn't taste like anything. The sauce isn't good. You got to learn how to do it, right? Right. But every time I've I've had a pizza from a place that specializes in making pizza, yep, they've never been bad. We can talk as much smack as we want about Domino's or Lizard Caesars or whatever, but if you put one in front of me, I will eat it happily. You know why? Because I like I will pizza eat more <laughs> than my share. Right. I'll, I'll fight you for the last piece of whatever this is. Yep. I am not shy about eating pizza, yeah. All right, let's move on to May the 9th. So May the 9th of 1904, the steam locomotive, whose name is the City of Truro, becomes the first steam engine to exceed 100 miles an hour. That's 1904. (laughs) I'm sure 100 miles an hour at 1904 must have felt like you were going the speed of light. Oh, for sure, yeah. Right? It's only a year after we get an airplane off the ground. Here's a train going on 100 miles an hour. And I'm pretty sure that the planes weren't even going 100 miles an hour unless they were going 100 miles an hour oh, straight no. down into the ground. So right. <laughs> this train was running a line between Plymouth and London, Paddington Station in London in Britain. And it, was, okay. it, it made its final clocking up like 102.3 miles an hour. And I can only imagine the people who were in the train thinking like, oh, goodness me, that, the, those trees are just smears against the window. <laughs> Have we gone into space, darling? They're all fighting for the bathroom, yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine. It must have been terrifying. What's hilarious is it, it is 2023, and do we even have trains in America that go 100 miles an hour? I don't think we do. <laughs> no, no, we don't. We do not. Uh, I think the fastest train in America is the Acela. That one might hit 120 miles an hour for four miles of track between Boston and New York or New York and Washington, D.C., but the average mm-hmm. speed of that train is under 80 miles an hour. Not like in huh. Japan where they go 360 or China where they go 450 or most of Europe where they go in the high 200s. We go oh, almost almost yeah. 85. Choo-choo! <laughs> All right, let's go on to the 10th. All right. May 10th, 2011. Microsoft announces that it has closed the deal to purchase the internet phone service Skype for $8.5 billion, with a B, billion dollars. Oof. Do you remember using Skype, Bill? You know, that is such a funny like thing because we're Generation X, you and I, and I remember 
growing up, always hearing these like fantastic tales of someday when you're on the phone, you're going to be able to see who you're talking to. Right. And that was always like the Jetsons flying car, you know, like it, it was such a carrot on the stick. And then Skype happened. Skype was it a did. thing. Yep. And nobody used it. Nope. And it's it started out being something that was useful just as high data rate network transmission was starting to become a thing to overcome the yep. lag that was inherent in streaming video, right? But yeah, yep. it's uh, one of the things that just sucks about talking on like modern phone services like Skype or FaceTime or Teams or whatever is that you have to sit there. You can't multitask because people can see what you're doing. You know, yep. you, you have to be like smiling. Hi, it's good to see you. Oh, it's great to see you too. Like, are you going to do anything else in that little two-inch box? No. <laughs> awesome. And it's really uncomfortable even now, but less so <laughs> because of the pandemic. Yeah. Before I get to talking about the pandemic thing, uh, another thing that I used to be curious for me with Skype is no matter what, whenever I did use it, you know, mm-hmm. and I liked using it because I, oh, yeah. I thought that was like a, a neat thing to do. Yep. It's just it was trying to find other people to do <laughs> to, right. to talk right. that way. Hanging up on Skype was always awkward. Yes. It's like, all right, okay, all right, bye. Uh, and yep. then, um, but like you said, the pandemic, you would think whenever the pandemic happened that Bill Gates and company over on Skype were probably just like grinding their hands like a mad scientist thinking finally we're going to get – some return on our investment from like 10 years ago. Right. And nope. Skype was one of the least popular ones. Everybody was using Zoom and like you just said, FaceTime. Right. I always just use Facebook Messenger. It's funny because the pandemic started right as Microsoft killed off Skype for business. They took the name and platform and they used it for their business software. So you could make, build like chat rooms and other things all... Uh-huh. within the interface for all users. And they changed that around and they released something called Teams, which didn't have any of the features that Skype for Business had. And then the pandemic uh-huh. struck in the same month. So oh, I was somebody who was teaching groups of people of up to 20 or f- sometimes 40 people at a time yeah. over Zoom. And we were told that we had to start to use this other Microsoft product, but it didn't have any of the features that Zoom had because Zoom was a standalone communications app and Teams was integrated with all this other stuff and didn't work well. Uh-huh. It was so difficult and complicated to get used to that I still I can still understand why people turn the camera off as soon as they get on to have a meeting or conversation with somebody else. Because man, I I don't want you to watch me talk. I don't want to. I, I can hear you just fine. Like there's nothing you're going to show me that I need to see in your little cube. You know, mm-hmm. it's still it's still a funny weird thing. Even though it looks like fun on the Jetsons. It's just yeah. not in real life. Yeah, during the pandemic, like in the initial lockdowns, like three years ago, we we would get group chats going with um, our, our friends from the haunted houses because, you know, we are all living far away from each other. And, uh, you know, I live by myself. A couple other people live by themselves, too. So we used to do the, the group video chat basically just so that we could see one another, you know? Right. But... I, I haven't done that. I haven't done that in a long time. Sometimes I'll do it with my friends out in the Midwest, but even then it's not often. I don't use video chats very often. No. I And I know like when we've done the movie nights, like that's all text-based. Text is way easier right. to, to manage that kind of stuff, <laughs> but that's just me. Skype had that as well. And I used to use Skype as a instant messenger tool, and it was a great like voice tool only for voice over IP. 
when I used to play yep. video games with friends, and so we could communicate with each other while we were playing games together. It was wonderful. It just, I don't use it anymore, and neither does anybody else. <laughs> neither does the rest of the world. All right. Controversy coming up, Jeff. Here it comes. Are you ready? ready? Yes. So, May the 11th, 1997, supercomputer called Deep Blue, who was really good at playing chess, defeats Gary Kasparov in the last game of a rematch, becoming the first computer to beat a world champion chess player in a classic match format. Yes, it's the only time I've ever watched chess on TV. Was was watching not that particular match, but watching highlights from that series because the whole thing wasn't televised because no one would have, in their right mind, in the United States would have sat for the hours needed to watch it. But I watched clips of it because there were yep. clips were captured of it and shown like on the news at night. What was really great was at the end of the that match, you know, they immediately put the microphone over to Deep Blue and it said ha 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 ha, and then Kasparov got really mad and walked away. <laughs> that's kind of like early dominoes of what is super like controversial or at least, you know, a conversation started these days with AI. Right. Every time I listen to the news, there's always some sort of apocalyptic talk about AIs just taking over the world. And we got to be careful and all that. And I don't know. I see these like quote unquote deep fakes, like the one you sent me before we went online of <laughs> of the uh, the Pope wearing a, like a triple fat goose jacket, and it's like I'm not even the most tech savvy person in the world, but I can look at that and say, yeah, that's that's AI. That's that's really super easy. There's a bigger conversation to be had about what what AI will ultimately be useful for. It's very good at doing things like identifying cancer cells a lot faster and with more accuracy than a person, etc. But when it's focused yeah. on a single task like a chess game and it doesn't have any other stimulus to deal with, right? It's just focused on that task. They're super great at things like that. It goes to show, too, there are some people who are so good at that one thing, it's almost difficult to measure. Like Kasparov beat a computer the first time they played. And then he yeah. beat it for one of two games or two of five games. A machine that was specifically designed to beat him at chess. Imagine yeah. if you were told to like go and box a machine that was specifically designed to box the crap out of you. You would lose because it's a machine. It doesn't get tired. Right. You know, it, it can think about what you're doing. I, I wonder how Gary would do up against like modern chess AI, you know? Right. He's, he's probably sitting at home with like that robot arm chess that you used to be able to get at Radio Shack. Goddamn chess. Do you remember the 2600? There was a chess on there. There yeah, was a chess cartridge you could buy. Yep. For starters, that thing was expensive. That thing was like $40, right? Yep, I remember. Uh, which is double the price of normal. And two, man, you got to be really into chess to play that on the 2600 because that was only a 4K program. Right. So for it to go and think of all these possible moves it could do, sometimes you would make a move and then the computer would think about its move and it would literally sit there for like an hour. Like, are you kidding me? Well, the That's way not a game you could play. Right. And so I'm going to say computer chess and I'm saying air quote computer chess, but like all the computer chess up to deep blue at that time had been effectively what is like a move sifter. So it yep. would have an increasing number of potential moves and follow-up moves and then follow-up moves to those potential moves and then follow-up moves that it would try and like map out two or three moves ahead or four or five moves ahead even of that. And what Deep Blue did was it analyzed Kasparov's play and then it adapted the way that it reviewed the moves to determine what it should do next because it would, was trying to figure out how it could make Kasparov do something different 
than what the moveset suggested it was. So it was a way more intuitive artificial intelligence than sort of rote programming, where what you get is very quick decision-making based on particular movesets. So like in, in the Atari 2600, it might only have 30 moves to check, but with only 4K of memory, it has to like play out those 30 moves in almost in real time to figure out which one of those 30 it wants to use. Right. It doesn't have the processing power like a modern computer where it can do 4 million moves in a second. All right. So let's move on to the 12th. May 12th, 1930. The first Alder Planetarium and Astronomical Museum opens in Chicago, Illinois. I don't know if you know this about me, Bill, but I love planetariums. I don't know if you know this about me, but I watched an episode of South Park probably 20 years ago. And to this day, if I say planetarium, I say planet arium because of that episode <laughs> do you really <laughs> go on and please tell me about your love of the planet ariums i love planet ariums so much that when i know <laughs> i'm going to go to a planet arium i play the song sanitarium by metallica but sing along as if the chorus is planetarium and it makes the song way better so there's that <laughs> Uh, no, so I love them. Which uh, which planetarium? I said it. Which planetarium are you going to that so, you're talking about? So we the, we have one up here in New Hampshire in Concord that's attached to the Krista McAuliffe Science Center, which is awesome. They do a great yep. bunch of programs there, and there's right. a really good one in Boston at the Boston Museum of Science, where I went last year this time with uh, my kids and their significant others to see uh, an hour long presentation of imagery and stuff tied to Radiohead songs. Oh, wow. And it was phenomenal. It was an amazing hour. I wish it could have gone on for two hours. It was just glorious. They used to advertise the Pink Floyd laser light show at the Boston Museum of Science Planet Arium. And I love me some Pink Floyd. Do we know that? Yes. I've always wanted to see. Do they still do that? I'd like to see that. I don't know if they do the laser light show still. But I know they do a Pink Floyd program there, and I don't know if it's the light show or if it's a planetarium imagery experience like we had for Radiohead. They've done a couple of huh. other ones, too, with like a live band doing, gosh, I can't remember whose music Meg went to it. I'll have to ask her. But what makes it so immersive is that spherical ceiling that gives you yeah. a feeling of depth and immersiveness without having to wear 3D glasses or... Or used like any kind of polarized lenses to look through to get the effect of three dimensions can make you dizzy, can make you feel like you're flying. Yeah. It's oh, it's awesome. Oh, so it's almost like a, a firmament as they talk about uh, the flat Earthers talk about like that that glass dome over the Earth, but yes. you're staring up at like a a dome projection screen. Yes. Yeah, I can understand how you would really lose yourself with that because there's no peripheral vision other than like your kids sitting next to you, right? Right, and and even then, it's so dark that it makes that the peripheral vision sort of disappear. Right. You've got that almost, I think you've got like 160 degrees of vision in a normal human head. And it's yep. almost always all covered by the by the screen. It's so much fun. Uh, well, I'll have to see if I can get up there. I'd, I'd like to see something like that. Mm -hmm. Here's something I did see. Uh, May the 13th, 1998 was part one of a two-part finale of Seinfeld. Oh. It was the last episode or episodes of Seinfeld that was on NBC and that was watched by 76.3 million viewers. Wow. That's right. a lot. That's I mean, a lot. Not nearly as many. That's not as much as MASH, but that is a lot from, from modern times. Yeah. That, that must have been. I mean, that show is only 
22 minutes long. So there's like eight minutes of commercials that they were selling during that. I wonder how much the commercials were for that. Oh, I got it. I got it right here. Do you really? Yeah, I got it right here. $2 million for 30 seconds. That's like Super Bowl money for a commercial. Yeah. Well, Seinfeld was a really crazy popular show. I know a lot of people that absolutely loved it. Yeah. And still, like, it still quotes stuff from it occasionally. Yeah, I'm one of those people. And it's been gone for 25 years. Yeah, it's true. Uh, Were you a fan? Was that something you watched? It wasn't something that I watched when it was on because it was on nights that I worked. Okay. Uh, So I only got to watch it occasionally. And some of it it was on when I lived overseas and it wasn't on in England when I was there. But I've watched it since in, in its years of reruns as a precursor to a right following after the Simpson reruns that I used to watch all the time as well. So I've, I think I've seen probably all of them, just not right. in, when they were originally broadcast. The finale was funny. It goes to, it goes to show you how much, how terrible all of them were as people. Yeah. It's like the whole joke I, of the finale. I used to watch Jerry Seinfeld do stand up before he had the TV show. I was a fan of him as a stand up right. comedian. And whenever he got his own show, I was kind of happy and excited, even though I didn't really watch it when it was on. I did watch these finales, though. Our mutual friend Jim was kind of having like a, I don't want to say a party, but he invited a, a few people over to watch the finales. Right. And I was like, yeah, I'll go. I don't know anything about the show, but I'll go because I like Seinfeld. I like the guy himself. Right. I like Jerry Seinfeld, you know. And uh, yeah, it was fun. It was fine. I have gone back and, and watched uh, the show, and I've been to the parts of New York. I'm walking around New York and uh, like Greenwich Village. I'm like, this is Seinfeld. I recognize this. I yep. recognize this street. <laughs> there are definitely some things that will live on from that show forever, like Festivus. I'm sure will be one of them. Yeah, uh, yeah. No soup for you, and and other things. It was a groundbreaking piece of TV. The best form that a three camera sitcom could deliver. I think. Now, which one lives on the most at my work? Because with the, this woman doesn't work there anymore, but. There was a woman that we used to call Man Hands because yeah. of, there was an episode of Seinfeld. Well, yes. Yes. I like the the one where he dates the woman who's, whose name reminds r- rhymes with a human body part, but he can't remember what her name is. Melva. 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 <laughs> Dolores, come then, back. Yeah. Then, yeah, he remembers it as Dolores. It's very funny. I remember telling my ex-girlfriend that, that, uh, that joke. And she was like, hey, I can't believe you just said that to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it looks like this is going to be a short date. Good night. Yep. (laughs) I guess we'll be splitting the check. (laughs) All right. Uh, Wrap up the week. May 14th, 1982. The Clash released their not final record, but the final record with their original lineup. Uh, Combat Rock. I think they're original say it, Jeff. lineup. Minus... Say it. You know you want to say it. Say their penultimate album. They're... You know you want to say it. <laughs> I'm trying to dial back my vocabulary for our audience. No, their penultimate album. Well, I couldn't remember if they had one or two that came after it, so that's why I didn't use that word. All right. Combat Rock was the last one before Mick Jones went off to do Big Audio Dynamite. He had had enough of touring, and he was tired of playing big arenas and not having the intimacy of with his fans that they had had when they were in the British punk scene, as they were starting right. to grow. Combat Rock was the first Clash record that had singles on it that charted in the United States. They had Rock the Casbah, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Yeah, that was, I mean, the Clash was a a punk band. They were the, like you just said, the, the British working class punk band. Right. This album was a lot more poppy. You know, yes. when you think punk, when you think 77 British punk, 
you don't think Rock the Casbah. That doesn't come to mind. No. You know? That is an I 80s mean, record. That is yes. an 80s record, yeah. Yep. I mean, certainly Should I Stay or Should I Go is a lot more traditionally Clash Punk sounding. Mm-hmm. But they had started moving in a different direction, probably with the album prior to that one. Right. Sandinista. Sandinista, the double record. I, they had another song. Remember, the, it was a single. It wasn't on any album. It was called Radio Clash. Remember that yeah, song? this is the Radio Clash. Yeah, I remember that song. Yeah, that's closer to Rock the Casbah than London Calling is. Let's put it that way. Yes, and they really drew their following in talking about down-to-earth and urban. Yeah, well, Working lower, class. Yeah. Lower economic, yeah, working class, lower economic structure, like, issues in Britain. Songs like Guns of Brixton yeah. and Clash of the Rockers and stuff were all, like, really political. And then as they got more popular and had more studio interest, the politics part of it started to fall off. And then you end up mm-hmm. with, like, the closest they got, I think, on Combat Rock was Rock the Casbah, which is still a great song. I sing along with it every single time I hear it. I have yep. the album upstairs, and I never put it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, like we've established. It was a departure for them. The album that came out after it, I don't even remember the name of it. I just, all I remember about it is that Total sh- is the best review I've ever heard of it. <laughs> and I can't remember the name of that one either because I never bought it. Yeah, it's called Cut the Crap, which apparently they did not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the- <laughs> I'm looking at it now, and like most of the songs on there have less than you know three hundred thousand listens. Yeah, where you know should I stay or should I go is you know barreling towards a billion listens. Well, it makes you know? it it makes so, it easier for like Mick Jones now to continue his transformation into riffraff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show as he ages, <laughs> with all the money he gets in royalties from those two songs that he doesn't like. Actually, really like Big Audio Dynamite, but that is a discussion for another show. It is indeed another time because we are moving on to the celebrity birthdays. Yes, we are. May the eighth, nineteen forty. A worst song ever, alumni Tony Tennille, oh. the Tennille of Captain and Tennille. Very distinctive and beautiful voice, and yep, a very distinctive the- and beautiful bowl cut. Very distinctive and beautiful. Yeah, she did. She looked like uh, the kid from Eight Is Enough. Yeah. <laughs> She looks like she wants to sell me paint. She does look like she wants to sell you paint. That's really funny. Um, <laughs> one of the uh, the foundational like sounds, if you had to send a, a CD or a record off into space to show aliens what the 1970s was like, you would include a Captain and Tennille song so they could hear her distinctive voice. They were one of the very popular, like some of the most popular music in the 70s that I guess it could fall into the whole like adult contemporary that we, you know, cringe at. Yep. But they were one of the more popular ones that weren't disco at that time, you know? Right. I, I will never forget that I will always associate Love Will Keep Us Together with Jaws. They came out the same year. It was the year oh, my really? mom was became terrified of going to the beach and going into the water. And that song was on huh. the whole summer that we were going back and forth to the beach every other day when I was a kid. You'd hear it on AM radios and everything. It was it was everywhere. Love that. Time. There was a band that my band used to play with all the time that used to do Level Keep It Together as a cover. Yeah. And we always look forward to them uh, playing it because they did such a, a cool. It's, I mean, foundationally, it's a good song. Yeah. You know, it's yep. a, it's a fine, uh, it's a fine American uh, pop song. Great, right. great tune. All right. Moving on. May 9th, 1920. British writer Richard Adams, who is probably best known for creating the characters that would go on to traumatize millions upon millions of children 
with the book and later the cartoon Watership Down, whereupon oh multiple rabbits are killed. <laughs> I remember like when we first got HBO, there was an animated version of Watership Down. There was. And uh, it it's on and my brother's watching. I was like, What are you watching? And you know, I'm a little little kid. He's like, mm-hmm. Watership Down. And I don't know, it's a cartoon, you know? So I just like, oh, cartoon? Cool. I'm going to watch it. These rabbits are talking to each other. And, oh, my God! <laughs> I just saw a hawk swoop down and take one of them. It's, it's not coming back, right? Yeah. And and not the whole rabbit either. Just bits and pieces of it. Right. Watching them all, like, fight to the death in the war and at the end is, is something else. When the Netflix released a CGI version of that book, I want to say it was, like, two years ago, but it's probably closer to five years ago now. Yeah. Um, that did not. Thank get you, a, pandemic. Thank you, pandemic. Yes, but it did. It did not get a very good set of reviews. I was like, oh, I'll read. I have the book in my library. I'll read it. I have never read it. I've only ever seen the animated film from the seventies. Yeah. And I read the book, and the book is even more traumatizing than the bloody movie was. And it's a kids' oh, book, and I was like, oh my god, I would love to give this to a child just to see what they're like at the end of it. <laughs> it's a great allegory for religion and and authoritarianism and it's really really good he also wrote a book called the plague dogs which is about two dogs who escape from a testing lab that is also, wrong with that man? also horrible <laughs> as far as that goes and that was made into a film too but the film never really made it over here good taste prevails holy shit. richard adams hater of animals and he'll write you a novel <laughs> to show hates animals and children all right so moving on to May the 10th, 1957, a man born John Simon Ritchie, yeah. known better to the world as Sid Vicious. Ah, yes. The bass player? <laughs> bass player? Of the, uh, of the Sex Pistols. Yes, bass player of the touring band, the Sex Pistols, but not yeah. on the album, right? Yeah, they let him record, and then they erased all his tracks, and I think they brought back the original bass player. Right. I don't know, there's two schools of thought on that. I heard that Glenn Matlock came back and played the bass on the album, and then I also heard that Steve Jones played the bass yep. on the album. All I know is that it wasn't Sid Vicious. No. But he played He played on stage, and I'm sure the sound guy was like, I'm just going to turn this dial a little bit more to the left until, oh, I can't hear him now. Great. <laughs> Good boy. Keep on oh. going, guys. You know, meanwhile, he's smashing bottles over his head, cutting his chest open with a broken glass. Yeah, more than once, Steve Jones actually uh, like just unplugged him. Like he doesn't yeah. know, he doesn't care. Right? <laughs> Look at him; he's he's going wild. Uh, he's like he's doing a solo. I can't hear a thing. Sid Vicious was definitely a punk rock archetype. Yes, I I guess some nobody could be so bad that they can't serve as a bad example or whatever. Right? Uh, <laughs> let's not mince words at all. The guy was a piece of shit. Yeah, you know, him him being a piece of shit was his own undoing. He well, uh. He was a notorious heroin addict, and his mother didn't help. As a matter of fact, his mother ultimately killed him. Yeah. yeah so, she, so she said on her deathbed, right? She was the one who administered yeah. the, the shot to kill him. But the legacy of Sid Vicious is that punk from the time that they became really popular in the mainstream until now, still, is yeah. he became the, the archetype, almost a caricature of like the dumb, violent, brutish, monosyllabic, dumb skull that likes really loud punk music and wants to just punch people. And, man, yeah. the whole ecosystem isn't like that. It never has been like that. But he got latched no, on to, and not. that became what sort of defined what it would become, which is a shame. Because, you know, John Lydon slash Johnny Rotten, uh, you know, love him or hate him, 
the guy was a smart lyricist. Right. And Steve Jones is an amazing guitar player and, and songwriter. And Paul Cook, I mean, he didn't set the world on fire, but he was a, you know, a serviceable drummer. Sid was just, I mean, Sid's the one that everybody remembers, which yeah. is unfortunate. It is true. Uh, fun facts, he started out as a drummer with what eventually became Susie and the Banshees. Mm. But uh, moving on. May 11th, 1904, uh, Spanish surrealist artist Salvador Dali is born. He is probably best known for the painting of like melting clocks, at least as far as I understand. It's called The Persistence of Memory, you heathen. The Persistence of Memory. And I'm usually the art guy, but I don't know that. I don't know his work by title. He was a multimedia artist, so he did a lot of photography as well as painting and sculpting. <laughs> his surrealist style sort of helped to define what surrealism would ultimately be. To the point where he's in, you can't take him away. He's inextricable from surrealist art in discussion. So my father had this book, this mm -hmm. hardcover book. It's a photography book with all sorts of pictures of art throughout, you know, like going all the way back to like early Rembrandt and stuff yeah. like that. Yep. So, you know, Rembrandt was what, 1600s? E e sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, so it's got artwork going back all the way to there, then all the way up to, I mean, the book was published in the 70s, so right. it actually had some of the stuff from, like, Andy Warhol and right. uh, and, and that era. Mm -hmm. So it was just a complete historical depiction of arts, uh, art throughout the years. And Salvador Dali's Persistence of Memory was in there. And even as a little kid, like, I mean, a little kid, six years old, right. I'm looking at the book and it was one of those paintings that just grabbed me. It was like, I don't know what it is about this, but I like it. Right. And I remember drawing it in crayons and colored pencils. Hey, look at you that know, kitty. Can't even draw a clock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, <laughs> yeah, here's this like six, seven-year-old kid with his Crayolas mimicking this, ma this surrealist masterpiece. Right. I know the answer to this because we were talking about it before the show, but I'm going to make believe I don't. Okay. Uh, have you ever seen... Uh, persistence of memory, like in person. You know, it's funny. I haven't seen any of Dolly's stuff in person, and I go to a. Well, I don't go to a ton of museums, but I go to enough museums that I go to than more most people do. I think. Okay. I don't, I've never seen Dolly. I've never been to the Museum of Modern Art in, in New York, where I think most of his stuff is collected. But yeah, that's. I've seen Persistence of Memory. It's at the MoMA. It's at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Mm -hmm. It is tiny. You will walk right past it and miss it. Really? Because I've been to the MoMA three times, and I've only seen it once because it's really small. It is the size of a, a DVD case. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really small. Huh. Well, if I go to the MoMA this year, yeah. I will definitely look for it. Small size yeah, at all. Well, ask, yeah, ask around because you'll miss it. Right, I will. All right, so moving on to the 12th, American Baseball Hall of Famer and MVP, Yogi Berra. He was a catcher for the New York Yankees, but he is more known for his malapropisms than anything else. <laughs> One of the things, he used to come out with these sayings, but they never made like any sense. Right. So like, like the one that everybody seems to remember from him is, it's like deja vu all, all over, over again. again. Uh, a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. Uh, or, you know, the one that was it always go to other people's funerals or the, they won't go to yours. <laughs> or, or it ain't over till it's over. Another classic. Yeah. Um, 
And another, and the last one I have here is probably going to be my favorite one. Uh, just it really puts a, a a period on the end of the sentence of like what kind of odd stuff that he would say is if people don't want to come to the park, nobody's going to stop them. <laughs> I also like a baseball is ninety percent mental and the other half is physical. <laughs> All right, high quality. Uh, yep. Let's move on to the 13th. May 13th, 1945. Uh, harmonica player for the Jay Giles band, Magic Dick, born Richard Solwitz. Best nickname ever. Uh, he's born in New London, Connecticut, and plays, I'm pretty sure he played with the Jay Giles band all the way through their history. I believe so. He was one of the selling points for me listening to Love Stinks when it was given to me by my dad. So listen to the harmonica uh-huh. player on this. That was the phrase he used, like everything else I was familiar with. But hearing harmonica in that kind of sort of white boy bluesy party rock, I'd never heard before until that record. And I, I've loved it ever since. There is a song. It's more famously uh, on a live version. Mm-hmm. But there's a studio version of it as well called Whamma Jammer. <laughs> I mean, that guy just wails on that harmonica. That yeah. is that is some playing right there. That guy is amazing. And, you know, usually harmonica is, I always think of it as like an afterthought instrument. Like, oh, we'll put a harmonica solo in here because we don't have a insert orchestra pit or, you know, four layer synthesizer or some other thing or whatever. And we'll just put that there. Magic Dick always felt like he was part of the song construction from the beginning all the way through the record he's all the way through the single he's all the way through and it's not just like at the end of baba o'reilly where there's a harmonica solo in the live version he's part of the whole song and roger daltrey plays it right you know and then like huey lewis in the news he would bust out the harmonica you know huey lewis would bust out the harmonica every once in a while too but like magic dick was like a standalone harmonica player although he did play saxophone and a couple of other things too yep all right, and then I'm going to wrap up the week. So born May 14th, 1966, Fabrice, or better known as Fab, Morvan from the lip-syncing duo of Milli Vanilli. Because they were the technically the first discovered doing that, uh, got the right. mind of the deal. Um, it's a shame because they seem like nice dudes. Uh, the problem was that they won a Grammy. They wouldn't have won a Grammy. No, no one would have cared. But Yeah, they exactly. And everyone was like, oh, well, this makes yep. us look pretty bad, doesn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we want that Grammy back, and they're like, "Just take the thing," and it didn't. By then, the damage was already done. Yeah, they were. Uh, I mean, obviously, manipul. I, I they didn't just walk off the street one day and say, "I've got the plan. We're right. going to fool the world." No, they, they were puppets. You know, right. the record company and stuff like that. Yeah, it was a producer. I that genu- that. genuinely, like wholeheartedly, feel really, really bad for both of those gentlemen. As terrible as it turned out for them, that first record is a good record, even if they don't do anything but appear on the cover. That's what's always crazy to me, too, is that, like, there was a legitimate group there that sang, and they never gave them any further record contracts. Right. But they let Rob and Fob put out an album, you know, with them. And I don't know if you've heard it, but it's... The worst song ever. 
Okay, Jeff, we go back and forth. I pick a song, you pick a song, I pick yes. a song, you pick a song. But this week, we've got a request. Oh. We got a request from a listener named Lauren from Massachusetts who wants us to rip apart a song by Toby Keith called Red Solo Cup. Solo Cup, I fill you up. Let's have a party. Let's have a party. I love you. But I really hate how you're easy to crack. Okay, first of all, there's a ton of bad things to say about this song. But I I want to preface it by saying, for our listeners, we do not rip songs apart on this show. (laughs) (laughs) We generally find things about them to talk about that are interesting and that we find likable, unusually, or they're so bad that they bring a sense of humor. This song, on the other hand... Is, no, we're going to rip this one apart, yeah. <laughs> this song makes me wish my other ear would stop working when I have to listen to it. <laughs> she had wrote to me, she said, it's just silly and fun. And I'm like, no, it's neither. It's yeah. neither of those things. The right. thing about this song in particular, and modern country and western, 90s country and western music uh, in particular, I don't get i'm not a part of this culture mm-hmm. you know it's the hang out in bars uh tight blue jeans and a loose shirt that's tucked in kind of thing i a mullet it's i don't know uh, <laughs> i i don't understand this i'm not any part of this and usually whenever we're talking about a genre that i don't listen to i'll say oh, i'm not gonna say this is bad because i don't get it I'm going to say this is bad. This is this is a horrible song. This yeah. is everything about this. This song makes me long for the complexity and the lyrical richness of Achy Breaky Heart. <laughs> yeah, that that song moves me in ways that this song can't for sure. Yes, it moves me in ways that accidentally eating a box of chocolate at X-Lax does as well. <laughs> uh, no, for what the song is about, hey, isn't it great to drink out of a plastic cup? And plastic cups yep. are great, and we're great because we're drinking out of plastic cups. Man, you can celebrate all kinds of things. You can celebrate birthdays. You can celebrate graduations. You can celebrate marriages, divorces. You can celebrate life. You can celebrate death. But celebrating being an idiot is where <laughs> I have to draw the line. Like, there's so, no there's no nobility in saying, like, well, just if you drink from a glass, you're a dum-dum. Like, really? <laughs> That's the face you want to put on us for the rest of the world to see is that one like we just talked about sid vicious being like the the archetype the bad archetype who became a caricature of punk rock right you're doing this to the united states of america dum-dum i have a personal problem with toby keith because that man almost got me murdered (laughs) and and here's the story i was working for the spooky world at yes. that time and spooky world was still nearby so i had a lot of co-workers that lived nearby and they were like hey we're all gonna go to i think it was called jt's it was a bar that did like karaoke it wasn't a biker bar but there were some bikers that hung out there so right. it was, you know technically that a, makes it a, a biker bar any bar that has bikers yeah. in it is, becomes a biker bar right away yeah uh, it's a universal truth picture i'm trying to paint here 
is that it wasn't exclusively for bikers. Right. There was other yeah, there was you were, other types there. You too. weren't Pee Wee Herman walking in to use the phone. No. Right. Yeah. It was it wasn't a biker club. <laughs> it was just a bar. Right. Right. So anyway, I'm in there and everybody's doing karaoke. You know, it's, it's so typically a biker bar is going to have karaoke. So everyone's doing karaoke, and you know it's your typical karaoke fair. And then all of a sudden, my friend Mike gets up and he starts singing the Toby Keith song "Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue." Now, as I stated towards the beginning of the segment. I don't listen to country and western music. It's it's not in my wheelhouse at all, mm-hmm. right? So sitting across from me at, at, at this bar is this girl that worked with us, but she worked in a different part of the park than I did. Right. I recognize her, but I didn't know her. I don't know who she is. Right. And so Mike gets up and he starts singing the courtesy of the red, white, and blue. And the entire bar... The entire bar is singing along with him, except for one person, me. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying to this girl, I think her name was Karen, modern definition of Karen notwithstanding. I said, I, I made a joke, you know, and right. I was like, wow, I feel so out of place. I'm like the only person in this place that doesn't know this song. This right. throws me under a bus where there's a pack of wolves. She says to the biker dude oh, man. next to her. And this guy, he's got like the biker bingo card, right? He's got the leather vest. He's got the big ass mustache, the right. big fuzzy muzzy. And you know those bandanas that are right. like pre-tied just in case you can't figure out the complexity of tying your own bandana, right? So he's got one of those. <laughs> yeah, yes, I know those, what those are. with the American flag on it, right? <laughs> and she says to this guy, "Hey, he's never heard this song before." This guy looks at me dead in the eyes and says, "You've never heard of nine fucking eleven? And I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" And then he nudges the guy next to him and goes, "He's never heard this song before." And then the guy goes, "You never heard of nine fucking eleven? <laughs> And I was like, look, nothing against you, nothing against the song. I just don't listen to this kind of music. I don't want any problem with you or your bandana, dude. Yeah, I was out of there, man. Fuck that. Well, time we got to go. Am I still here? Amazing. Bye. Uh, I mean, back to Red Solo Cup. This is, its I don't know if it's the first song that falls into the weird subcategory of country called Bro Country, but it definitely shares a lot of DNA with it, like things that Florida Georgia Line sings. Yeah. Among others. Which, like Sid Vicious, like leans into the parts of country music that in small doses are kind of fun, but when it's the whole milieu of it, it's not. And I like country music. I think country music is a lot of fun. There's a lot of variations of it. There's a lot of folky stuff. There's a lot of like weird, heavy stuff. There's a lot of emotional stuff and a lot of sad stuff and a lot of funny stuff. But then there's this, which is like an excuse to be a dipshit. Yeah. I, I can't went... think of a better way to describe it. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, I don't tuck in my shirt or wipe my ass with my left hand. I, you know, <laughs> I, I got a solo cup and I drink Bud Light out of it. Except I can't drink Bud Light. I never did more because I got unicorns on the goddamn cans now. You know, it's like, Get it. Come on, dude. Yeah. Like, I went back enough. and I listened to some Toby Keith today, and it's not my kind of music. Lyrically, I think yeah. an AI could in- 
you know, really easily write these songs. You don't even need the I. You just need the A. (laughs) (laughs) They they all kind of like, there's like maybe five or six different topics, you know? It's like, oh, here's the one about the truck. And, oh, here's the one about sitting at the bar. And here's the, and I don't know if they have a limited imagination or if they're really afraid to deviate from the norm, thinking that, you know, their audience won't like it if they don't sing about these same six things over well, and over again it, so as a, as a thought exercise for you and for for those of us who listen those who listen to the show this discussion has been going on in country music for decades decades yeah. probably more than decades right there's a song from the 1970s by a guy named david allen co called you never even call me by my name and it's a great country song and when he sings it he talks about how he wrote this song and he thought he had written the perfect country song And then his producer said, well, it's good, but it's not perfect because you didn't say anything about mothers or pickup trucks or getting drunk or going to prison. So he writes a last line, a last verse for the song, which is, I was drunk the day my mom got out of prison and finishes the song out with that one funny, like, (laughs) end segment and yeah. effectively makes fun of the idea of the stereotypes that are in all country music. And this is like in the 1970s. Yeah, 40 years later, and we still haven't figured out the answer, right? Right. Oh, I just said the A word, Jeff. Answer. Oh, yeah, yeah, All right. Coming back around to our very popular and always well-received trivia question. Jeff, I gave yes. you a short list of very, very, very famous songs. Sweet yes. Dreams Are Made of This by Eurythmics. Right. Pinball Wizard by The Who, mm-hmm. Losing My Religion by R.E.M., Money by Pink Floyd, and Hound Dog by Elvis Presley. There are many, many other songs that fall into this category. Okay. But all of these songs are unusual in a certain way, and they're all unusual in that same way. What's wrong with these songs, Jeff? Uh, well, thanks for listening to the show, everybody. It's been great talking to you See you next all. week, guys. See you, See you next days. week, guys. Yeah. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. I, Bill, I have absolutely no idea. All right. So the general song, uh, especially popular music, follows a pattern where you have verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus. Right. None of those songs that I listed have a chorus. None of those songs have a repeating chorus. You can think about it all you want, but none I, of those I am, songs have sound, a I, I need like we need like a sound effect of like a diesel engine just idling until it stalls. That's what, <laughs> that's what my brain is like at this point in the recording today. So no, okay, well, um, I guess I'll have to go listen to them and then feel bad that I didn't know that. Yeah. All right. You hound uh, dog, uh, you. Yeah. Crying all the time. Crambone. All right. That's gonna wrap up the show for this week. We will see you guys back here in exactly seven days. You can count. You can count them. Yes. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, everybody. Bye. A special thanks to James Coster for our theme song. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, if everybody who listens to this show gets one more person to listen, we'll double our listenership.